This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Tonight, a worst case scenario for firefighters rescuing fishers on a swollen Capilano River. Plus... What I'm hearing is that everything is going to be minimalist. Preparing for the next pandemic holiday, the unique challenges for Remembrance Day and... This is a life and death situation for them. The importance of this traditional turkey dinner that's being served quite differently this year. You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening. Thanks for joining us. We begin with breaking news. A dangerous and tense scene on the North Shore as firefighters conducted a swift water rescue on the Capilano River under the Highway 1 overpass today. A group of fishers became stranded on a sandbar on the fast-moving river. Firefighters monitoring the situation were contemplating a couple of options and wanted to longline them out from top of the overpass. But they say that some of the fishers made the dangerous decision to try to cross the raging river, forcing the first responders to act immediately. Fortunately, they were all rescued safely. The Swiftwater environment is one of the most dangerous environments that we operate in. It's very hard to mitigate it safe. Uh, we had firefighters here when we watched it. We set up quickly. We put firefighters in dry suits and we responded. We were able to secure that first fisherman and then we just secured everyone. These fishermen did not have PFDs. They did not have helmets. Basically, they didn't have a plan to get off the sandbar. A woman in her 20s is dead, the apparent victim of a hit and run. It happened this morning on Highway 19 near Parksville on the island. The young woman's body was found on the median of the four-lane highway north of exit 51 southbound. Police are calling her death suspicious and traffic investigators and collision analysts are on scene. The road remained closed for hours as evidence was gathered. RCMP have not released a description of the suspect vehicle, but are appealing for anyone with information or dash cam video to call them. As people here at home and across the country try to safely mark Thanksgiving this weekend, others are looking ahead to another important upcoming observance, Remembrance Day. From the Poppy Fund campaign to the Cenotaph services, nearly every aspect of the event has been changed because of the pandemic. Nadia Stewart has more. The Royal Canadian Legion is busy preparing for Remembrance Day, adjusting the traditional poppy campaign for unprecedented times. I would think we're gonna, we're, we are going to see a difference. Jim Howard is the Vancouver Poppy Fund administrator. He says they're still getting calls for counter trays, but those will only be distributed by request. They won't have help from young cadets this year, and volunteers are taking every precaution. They're all going to be wearing a mask. They are not going to be pinning the poppies on the, on the individuals as they were, and they're going to try and keep the, uh, the six-foot distance. Expect Remembrance Day ceremonies to be scaled back as well, with limits on gatherings. There'll be no parade of uh, the military or veterans or cadets or anyone else. 
A band and a, a choir will be done in a remote location. A significant change for an annual event uniting multiple generations. From the very, very young to the old. And of course the veterans are always there as well. The people I've talked to are disappointed, obviously, but they're also realistic people. I mean, they know, they've been there and done that. People are being encouraged to tune in online or mark the day in more personal and private ways. The hope is for things to return to normal next year. I have to be optimistic that by this time next year, we'll have come through this terrible pandemic and that we'll be easing into a more usual and more regular style of life. Poppy fundraising begins at the end of October. They have just under two weeks to raise funds. Amidst all of the changes this year, they're hoping the generosity of Canadians remains the same. Nadia Circleville News. Just two weeks left in the provincial election campaign, and if re-elected, the NDP is promising a new elementary school for Vancouver's Olympic Village. Vancouver Falls Creek candidate Brenda Bailey and Vancouver Fairview candidate George Heyman made the announcement from the green space in Olympic Village. Families on the south side of Falls Creek have been calling for a new school for years. Land has been set aside next to Hinge Park, but no funding has been allocated. The New Democrats say the money would come from the party's pandemic recovery plan. No parent wants their kid to go into a crammed classroom. And no kid wants to spend hours in the car or on the bus commuting to school. We know that the Vancouver School Board has been uh, looking at um, uh, prioritizing a school in Olympic Village. Uh, we were working with them uh, before the election. Uh, this extra recovery funding uh, allows this to uh, happen even faster. More and more families are choosing to stay in Vancouver right in the core as their children go older. Originally the idea was that the King George High School in the West End would basically peak out because the number of kids is expected to go down. Now it's actually going up. So we're going to have to address this issue of elementary schools in the downtown core because the number of children is actually growing slowly but surely. And that's a completely legitimate uh, query that we'll be addressing in the election campaign. It was dueling campaigns as both the Liberals and the NDP campaigned today outside Richmond Hospital over its planned expansion. Liberal leader Andrew Wilkinson said they will deliver on the expansion immediately if elected. In 2016, the Liberals launched concept planning for the project. Earlier this year, the NDP announced a new concept plan that included a nine-story tower and new ER. Business planning and budgeting was supposed to happen this fall, but an election was called. Not to be outdone, the NDP's Adrian Dix, who served as health minister, says his party has made the project happen. The original plan approved by the B.C. Liberals in 2016 provided for $283 million for the facility to be built. There was some reworking around uh, the underlying geology, and now there's a slightly different plan, and the costing is still not complete, but we will build that new tower. And the plan is for over 200 beds of acute care services to go into the new tower to replace some of the existing services. We fully endorse the revised plan, and we will pay for it. Here in Richmond, more seniors care, every care home getting an increase in its care hours, supports in the community. You can't do all of those things and cut end the speculation tax and the employer's health tax and gut the sales tax. You, can't, you can have it your way, you can't have it both ways. You can't come here to Richmond and say we support the NDP agenda for the Richmond Hospital and at the same time take away the resources to support health care.
In Victoria, B.C. Green leader Sonia Furstenau announced her party's plans for more livable cities. If elected, the Greens are committing to working with local governments on walkable neighbourhoods and active transportation and establishing a vision for sustainable transit on the South Island. There's more talk than ever about smart regional planning and about ensuring that our communities grow as they grow they do so in a way that recognizes and responds to the climate emergency. Another somber and frustrating Thanksgiving for one Surrey father. His son was killed nine years ago this week trying to break up a fight on a transit bus. Charges have never been laid in connection with Jamie Kehoe's death, but his family has been told the case remains open. As Julia Foy reports, they're now looking at other avenues in the courts in hopes of finding justice. I'm just trying to fight for my son, just a dad fighting for my son. Surrey father Jason Kehoe tends to the roadside memorial to his 18-year-old son Jamie. He stayed and stabbed a kid four times. A vigil was held Thursday night to mark nine years since Jamie's death and to push for justice. There was a kid murdered and probably four other assaults that happened that night and not one minor assault charge laid, nothing done. Surrey RCMP arrested a suspect and recommended three charges. But in 2012, the criminal justice branch determined there would be no charges because it was believed to be self-defense. I feel sad that I wasn't able to help or tell my story. Then in July of 2019, a woman contacted the Kehoe family who says she witnessed the mayhem on the bus that night and the stabbing was not in self-defense. She later spoke to the Integrated Homicide Investigation Team. However, Crown did not change their position and the case remains open. How are they investigating? We brought forward a witness that remembers 100% this was straight murder and they didn't do anything with that information. So Kehoe is now speaking out through a podcast he posted on his social media site. There could be some people out there that know stuff. We asked a Vancouver lawyer what the public can do if they feel they've been denied justice. If Crown Council declined to approve charges, uh, filing a complaint and asking for a review of the charge approval decision. Families can also file a civil suit against the police for a negligent investigation and also the suspect arrested in the crime, even if you don't know their name. You can file a lawsuit against John Doe, and then you can compel the police to provide information. Finally, the public can reach out to the police complaints commissioner about how the investigation was handled. For Jason Kehoe, he says nine years is long enough to wait for action. I'm hoping this will be enough to maybe light a fire. And uh, if it doesn't, I've got more matches. Julia Foy, Global News. Two of 27 Nanaimo schoolhouse squatters arrested two years ago pleaded guilty this week. Mercedes Coteroy and Christopher Thompson received conditional discharges for mischief. They'll avoid criminal records if they complete 12 months of probation. In October of 2018, activists broke into the vacant Rutherford Elementary School in a protest against homelessness. The school district says the group caused six figures worth of damage, including holes in the roof and damaged walls. They were also ordered to pay $1,000 in restitution. Two others, Ivan Drury and Ting Chun Chen, are set for trial on mischief and break-and-enter charges. Three years of declining returns for Okanagan apple farmers have taken their toll on local growers. Today, members of the BC Fruit Growers Association took their concerns directly to consumers to highlight their plight. Darian Matassa-Fung has more. A year ago, I said farmers are drowning. Well, yeah, we're, we're at the bottom of the pool right now. The B 
BC Fruit Growers Association selling apples for 12 cents a pound at the Kelowna Farmers and Crafters Market. We're making uh, public awareness and uh, highlighting some of the financial difficulties that farmers have been having for the last three years. More specifically, Pinder Dollywall is talking about Okanagan apple growers. We've been getting on average return of, if you put all the apples together, about 12 cents. And it's costing uh, growers 30 cents, 35 cents to grow the apples. So technically we're putting money into uh, our operations. And how long can that last? Can't last that long. That's per pound. Right now, apple farmers are getting around 12 cents per pound. A number Sukdeep Brar, a Summerland apple grower, says is crippling the apple industry in the valley. It's so hard with, especially 2020 has been a wild year. We've had COVID, we've had labor shortages, we've had hail, we've had rain, we've had mixed weather. And I think the important thing is it's not just this past year, it's been three years of depressed prices for us. So what exactly is driving down apple prices for farmers? Is uh, the input costs, you know, labor's going up, the weather factors, that doesn't help, that increases our cost and our production, uh, what we have for the market decreases. Uh, other in, uh, imports, that are being uh, helped out by governments, uh, whereas we're having difficulty in that. The BC Fruit Growers Association is asking Okanagan residents to reach out to local MLAs during this election year. They want people to let MLAs know how important locally grown foods, especially apples, are to them and our community. All proceeds from these apple sales are being donated to the Okanagan Food Bank. Darian Matassafung, Global News, Kelowna. This Thanksgiving, some are eating well and supporting their local restaurants, which have been struggling during the pandemic. Restaurants, including the Irish Heather in Gastown, are now offering up more takeout turkey meals. Now, normally they'd prepare and serve about 200 such holiday meals in-house over two days. Well, now they're serving just 30 each day dine-in and 120 takeout orders. That's just one of the many ways restaurants have adapted in order to keep their doors open. It's fantastic, and I'm scratching my head wondering why I didn't do this before COVID. And it's, I really think it's something that, you know, this time next year, you know, hopefully COVID is over and we have our long table and our, and our walk-in business back for Thanksgiving, but we also have retained this business for Thanksgiving. That would be tremendous. That would be the bonus, the silver lining. They have to make the hay where, where they can. Uh, last year, like I said, it was more of a convenience. This year, it is like, you know what, we have to fill the gap here because we can't survive at 60%. There's a lot of restaurants throughout British Columbia have been very innovative. Dinners for two, dinners for 12. Um, some have cocktail kits. Um, it's all over the map. Take COVID-19 seriously. That's the message from a Vancouver woman whose infection with the virus was just the latest struggle she's had to overcome. As Kristen Robinson reports, she's now championing the Union Gospel Mission's efforts to bring Thanksgiving meals to the most vulnerable during a holiday marked by pandemic protocols. Jennifer Allen is serving up hope during a Thanksgiving unlike any other. Behind this mask and shield is a survivor. For me, uh, being here at Thanksgiving means a lot because UGM has been here to save my life on multiple occasions. The 43-year-old determined to give back after years of homelessness, addiction and survival sex trade work. Even as she struggled, she found time to bring attention to downtown east side issues. 
So we have 24 people occupying this condo over here to show the desperation that we're in due to the housing crisis. For myself, I knew there's a better life out there and I just didn't know how to access it. Enter Union Gospel Mission. With their support, Allen is now living in transitional housing where she faced her latest battle, COVID-19. I had like really intense chest pains, a fever. I was hospitalized on three occasions. Out of quarantine and officially recovered, she's fighting for others living on the streets. As people feel absolutely forgotten and abandoned and ground down right now. With COVID restricting social services and indoor spaces for the most vulnerable, overdose deaths and homelessness are up. We're seeing a surge in need and it's really difficult and people need to know that they have some hope and that there is light at the end of the tunnel. Instead of serving 3,000 meals a day inside, UGM taking its pandemic Thanksgiving outside, handing out more than 1,600 meals to go over four days with social distancing and sanitization. This is a life and death situation for them. And so they really, really need places like this open during this time. Thank you very much. Kristen Robinson, Global News. This was the scene in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, when a crane crashed down on a house. Officials say the crane operator was installing a shed in the neighbor's backyard when something failed, causing the crane to flip on its side. Thankfully, no one was injured. COVID cases are soaring in many parts of Canada. In parts of Ontario, new restrictions are now in place as the province's death toll surpasses 3,000. Jeff Semple is following the developments tonight in Toronto. Jeff. Jeff. Colleen, people here in Toronto, in Ottawa, and next door in Peel region woke up this morning to a dreaded deja vu. It is frustrating. Global News first interviewed this Toronto restaurant owner last summer during the first wave in lockdown. A second closure will be perhaps even worse for us. Fast forward a few months and his fears have been realized. We risk worst case scenarios. Ontario now shuttering all indoor dining, movie theaters, casinos and gyms in Toronto, Peel and Ottawa. This gym invested thousands of dollars in air purifiers and plexiglass and just reopened its doors after being forced to close for three months. So that's almost half a year of our income that's going to be gone. They, like many others, are now shifting their service outdoors, keeping a nervous eye on the weather. Last time that we spoke, uh, we were heading into the summer, so we knew that we were going to be busy in the patio. Now we can only uh, trade in the patio, but we know that we're going to the cold months. The Ontario government now facing a chorus of criticism for not taking steps sooner to slow the spread. We waited too long during the, the slow part of exponential growth. Now we're in the rapid part of exponential growth, so we have to do things harder. Canada's largest provinces, Ontario and Quebec, have the highest number of cases. But the provincial picture per capita tells a different story, with Quebec, Manitoba and Alberta topping the list. I think within the city of Edmonton, we're starting to see the beginning of a second wave. After Quebec and Ontario reimposed restrictions, experts worry Alberta could be next. Toronto has around 58 active cases per 100,000 people. Edmonton has 108. The Alberta government is relying on voluntary restrictions to limit gatherings in large groups 
And Alberta's premier sounds a lot like Doug Ford did a couple of weeks ago. We're not going to enforce our way out of this. There was action taken with voluntary recommendations and guidelines. If that is not effective over the next two weeks, we may have no choice but to bring in uh, more formal closures or, or restrictions. In Canada's hardest hit province, meanwhile, police are enforcing the lockdown with checkpoints, ensuring Quebecers don't travel too far from home for Thanksgiving. And Ontario is also following Quebec's lead when it comes to the length of this latest lockdown. These restrictions will remain in place for at least the next 28 days. Colleen? Thanks so much, Jeff. The World Health Organization has announced a record in new daily COVID-19 cases around the world. More than 350,000 infections were reported to the health agency on Friday. That surpasses a record set earlier this week by nearly 12,000. More than 36 million cases of COVID-19 have now been reported since the pandemic began, with more than 1 million deaths around the world. The U.S. is recording more than 7.7 million infections since the pandemic began. Despite that, President Donald Trump, who has COVID-19, addressed another large crowd on the White House lawn today. As Jennifer Johnson reports, he's continuing to play his own illness and the risk of the virus. Desperate to recharge his campaign, U.S. President Donald Trump hosted hundreds of supporters at the White House just days after being hospitalized for COVID-19. Some of the attendees were invited by the Blexit Group, a campaign urging black Americans to leave the Democratic Party. The president spoke from an upstairs balcony, the spot where he took off his mask after returning from Walter Reed National Military Medical Center Monday night. Our nation's going to defeat this uh, terrible China virus, as we call it. And we're producing powerful therapies and drugs, and we're healing the sick. The outdoor gathering, with few physically distancing, took place exactly two weeks after the Supreme Court nomination ceremony for Judge Amy Coney Barrett. Several people who attended that later tested positive for COVID-19, including the president and first lady. We had a super spreader event in the White House, and it was in a situation where people were crowded together and were not wearing masks. The president pushed for Saturday's event while still skirting the question of whether he is now tested negative for the virus. But I've been retested and I know I'm at either the bottom of the scale or free. It's really at a level now that's been uh, great, great to see it disappear. The president continues to downplay the threat of COVID-19 as the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention reports new cases have hit a two-month high, with 10 states reporting record increases. On the campaign trail, Democratic candidate Joe Biden continues to blast the president for what he calls reckless actions. I just read that the CDC was going to require masks on public transportation. 40,000 people a day are coming down with coronavirus. And, they, and the White House blocked it. What is the matter with this guy? The president's campaign says it was not involved in planning this event, and several inside the White House were reportedly against it. But the president is not backing down in his battle to get reelected. A major rally is scheduled Monday night in Florida. Campaign officials say attendees will have their temperatures checked and encouraged to wear masks. Jennifer Johnson, Global News, Washington. Minnesota health officials have tied nine new COVID cases to a Trump rally in Minnesota held on September 18th. Of the nine, two have been hospitalized, one in intensive care. Trump's communications director issued a statement saying trying to tie the cases to an outdoor event that occurred three weeks ago where hand sanitizer and face masks were supplied is a stretch. 
Prime Minister Justin Trudeau spoke with President Trump today. Trudeau wished the President and First Lady well after their recent diagnosis. Trudeau thanked the President for his ongoing support from the U.S. in seeking the immediate release of Canadians Michael Kovrig and Michael Spavor detained in China. Their arrests have been viewed as retaliation for the detention of Huawei executive Meng Wanzhou after landing in a Vancouver in Vancouver Airport almost two years ago. She was, of course, arrested at the request of the U.S. In Health Matters tonight, a recent study found that getting enough sleep may help protect you from COVID-19. Researchers at the University of California, San Francisco and Carnegie Mellon purportedly or purposely rather infected 164 people with a strain of the common cold, then tracked their sleeping habits. The study found those who slept less than six, six hours each night were four and a half times more likely to develop cold symptoms. That's compared to those who slept more than seven hours each night. Doctors say a person's T-cells are the soldiers that fight infections, such as the coronavirus, and they are less effective in people who are sleep-deprived. Sleep deprivation can increase your risk of either developing the viral infection or fighting off the viral infection if you do get it. Sleep is a big part of, um, of life, and I think it's very important that people accept that, and uh, there's no heroics in saying you sleep a little bit because that doesn't help you. You're watching Global News Hour at 6. The six-year-old who is blowing people away with his talent at the keyboard. We're going to have his story for you right after Yvonne's forecast. But first, people living along the Louisiana coast are assessing the damage from Delta. Delta blew ashore as a Category 2 storm last night before weakening as it moved further inland. Uh, there weren't any deaths blamed on the storm, but it brought flooding to some areas, ripped up trees and down power lines as well. It knocked out electricity to about a million of the state's customers. The same area of Louisiana was already recovering from the impact of the much more powerful Hurricane Laura, which struck six weeks ago. Delta was the 10th named storm to hit the mainland U.S. this hurricane season. That's a new record. Hurricane season doesn't officially end until November 30th. Yvonne, it's been a little bit, a little bit stormy here, too. It has been stormy, not as stormy. Just as a quick glance at what tropical, post-tropical cyclone Delta looks like at this hour. So we're continuing to watch it. There's lots of watches and warnings and any updates we'll have uh, coming your way. But it looks like uh, it was a wet, a soggy and a, a soaker for us to kick things off for a long weekend. These are some rainfall totals and these were taken Friday through this morning. For example, Port Mellon with 100. 32 millimeters, Squamish picking up over 70, areas near Cultus Lake up to 59, Pitt Meadows 48 millimeters for Tofino, closer to 50, out of the harbor for Vancouver at 39 and the airport at 28 millimeters. We did have heavy rain. We are going to track another wave that is going to push in, but there is a break on the way for our long weekend forecast, and I'll have the timeline in just a moment. We're just before sunset this evening. Here's a shot overlooking English Bay. Temperatures are currently sitting at 13 degrees. We bumped up to 50 degrees is the high. We're actually close to the average for this time of the year. And we've got a light southwesterly wind at 7 kilometers per hour. Here's a quick glance at what it looks like on the satellite and radar. We do have some instability. A few cells have popped up. We can see a few lightning strikes. Areas near Hope right this hour. There is the potential to still see some showers this evening overnight. And then we've got another wave that is going to push in. But that starts to pick up towards tomorrow morning. And it is going to be a blustery day. 
Heads up for tomorrow, wet and windy, and temperatures will be on the cool side with highs closer to 12 degrees. Here's what we're looking at. So overnight tonight with a chance of showers, tomorrow morning the rain is going to pick up. It'll intensify, especially as we get in towards the afternoon, heavy at times, and then continuing through the day tomorrow. Most areas along the south coast, wet and windy, especially for areas that are closer to the water. Southeasterly, sustained at 30, and the potential areas near the Strait of Georgia up to 60 kilometers per hour. Rainfall amounts anywhere between 10 and potentially up to 35 millimeters as we get in towards the evening hours. We can see that range with even higher amounts along the southern edge of the island with Victoria picking up closer to 30 millimeters. With the cooler air mass, we are looking at the snow level dropping anywhere between 1,300 and 1,500 meters. So a heads up if you're traveling along any of the mountain passes this evening and for tomorrow. Areas near the summit will be seeing flurries, for example, along the Coquihalla, the Connector, and the Kootenai Pass, but just flurries, not much in terms of accumulation. Now, the northern half of the province tomorrow, we are seeing another wave of rain, heavy at times. Temperatures will be up to 10 as the high for areas near Prince Rupert. It'll be dry for the northeastern corners of the province, similar with some breaks across the central interior. Much of the southern interior should have a drier start to the morning. An increase in cloud cover, a chance of showers will move in late in the afternoon and evening. Periods of rain and heavy at times. A cool day for Whistler tomorrow with highs up to 8 degrees. For the early morning hours along the south coast, we'll see cloud cover. The rain begins in the morning. It continues to be heavy at times through the day. It'll be blustery for tomorrow, especially closer to the water. Windy with up to 30 kilometers per hour. But a much-needed break. The nicest day out of the bunch so far will be for Thanksgiving through oh, the day. Good. Some nice breaks. We are going to see a chance of showers that may roll in towards the evening. So just a heads up if you do have plans but pleasant through the day to get out for a walk, enjoy some of that turkey, maybe walk it off. And then on third Tuesday, we are looking at another round of rain. It is going to be blustery for tomorrow and then some sunshine for our Monday. Colleen? Okie doke. Thanks so much, Yvonne. A six-year-old piano prodigy is being called a rare talent in France. Guillaume Benolil began playing when he was just one year old while sitting on his mother's knee. His parents realized he could hear a tune and then play it for himself. He began taking piano lessons at the age of four. He played a concert hall in Austria in August and has already won several prizes for his talent. Now keep in mind, he has only been playing for two years. Guillaume goes to school and likes swimming and now... He has expressed desires to learn how to play the violin his grandmother gave him. I don't feel inadequate at <laughs> all. It's very musical. Must have got chopsticks in like seconds. <laughs> he's amazing. I love the shot of his feet just dangling there. Right? He can't even touch the ground. And he's yeah. so Vaughn, good. I think that's the way you play Yeah, exactly. I still can't touch the ground yeah. either. But. And always will, right? Yeah. Barry, what do you have coming up? Well, second day of... Uh Free agency, Tyler Toffoli still out there, Alex Pertangelo is still out there, but uh, Troy Stetcher, who was a Canuck for four years, Canucks didn't have him in their plans anyway, but he has signed on with another team. We'll tell you where he is going in sports. From loneliness to anxiety, the pandemic has worsened mental health challenges for most people. On this World Mental Health Day, we're rem being reminded to do two things. Keep our social gatherings small, but also to reach out to those who may be feeling alone. Morgan Campbell has more. Are you smiling right at the camera, yeah? 2020 has delivered another low point as families are being told to avoid large Thanksgiving celebrations. We are 
I think kind of ex we're expecting it, sort of preparing for it. Jonah Balashi's um, family won't be seeing any extended relatives this holiday. With aging in-laws, they are faced with the same challenges other Ontarians are experiencing. We're trying to be as responsible as we can, and hopefully next Thanksgiving will be a better one. As people crave togetherness, experts say there is no doubt as to how the global pandemic is affecting people physically and emotionally. Saturday is World Mental Health Day, and even though people are being encouraged not to gather, experts are asking everyone to check in on family and friends in need. Especially for those people who are in isolation, we know that community and connection and just the human spirit in this time is one of the things that is getting us through this. Words echoed by Toronto's mayor who spent the morning collecting food bank donations. Let's get rid of that stigma. Let's make sure every day is mental health day for everybody, and that means for ourselves, but also for other people that we care about. A new study from Mental Health Research Canada has found that one in five Canadians has been diagnosed with anxiety or depression since the pandemic started. Experts say it is hard to quantify the effects the pandemic and social isolation are having on people. The older people who are really scared, like to their core, that this could and their life or, or the life of someone they love. Um, I, I think most of the kids will be okay. But again, it's just such a strange thing. I think we will be studying this for years to come. Experts are also urging people across the country to listen to what officials are saying and to take their recommendations seriously. And it's not lovely, it's not great, it's not what anyone wanted. But hopefully we'll get through the sacrifices and it will all be resolved. Morgan Campbell, Global News. Barry's here with sports, and you've got some news about the Canucks tonight, Barry. Mm -hmm, certainly, uh, Colleen, when the new NHL season starts, it'll be a lot different Canucks team because uh, a lot of the old guys are moving on. Uh, first, Chris Tanev went to Calgary late last night. Now, Troy Stetcher has been signed by the Red Wings. They were uh, two key cogs on the Canucks' blue line gone, so now you'd have to expect Jim Benning is looking for a defenseman through trade or free agency. The Canucks didn't qualify Stetcher, and today he signed a two-year deal in Detroit, averaging out at about a 1.7 million a season, which is decent money for an undersized guy who can move the puck and plays with a lot of heart. In his four years here, Stetcher played 286 games, often slotted in the top four when injuries hit, but a guy you could always count on to play hard. He seemed to be in Travis Green's doghouse periodically, but had a very strong playoff for the Canucks. But Troy Stetcher is moving on to the Motor City. He is now a Detroit Red Wing. Also today, the Oilers have signed defenseman Tyson Berry to a uh, one-year $3.75 million deal. Berry played with the Leafs last year. The Victoria native played the first seven years of his career in Colorado. He'll certainly be the key point man on the power play, as if McDavid and Dreisaitl needed more help. Alex Petrangelo and Tyler Toffoli are still in the market, but Petrangelo did meet with Vegas today. Brooke Henderson has one major win. It came four years ago and she was just 19. It was the KPMG Women's PGA Championship and Brooke is in contention to win that tournament again thanks to a sparkling five under 65 today in round three. This tournament being played in Philadelphia this year. Brooke began the day four shots off the lead. Fantastic approach here though at the sixth almost holds it out for an eagle. Look at that, that close. Made birdie, three under for the day and tournament at that point. Ninth hole, Brooke with the eagle attempt. And this is red almost perfectly. Again, just slides by, but she tapped that in for birdie. So makes the turn at four under and then on 12, another birdie. Just 
taps that one and gently slides it in the side door. Tied for low round of the day, 500 par 65. She's in second place. She is chasing South Korea's Se Young Kim, who drains the long birdie on 15. Kim is at seven under, two better than Brooke. They'll play in the final group tomorrow with the major on the line. Adam Hadwin also had himself a fantastic Saturday on the PGA Tour. Seven birdies and an eagle in a 9-under 62, but that still wasn't good enough to get any TV time in Vegas. He did go out early, but Hadwin has put himself in the hunt tomorrow, tied for ninth and just uh, four shots off the lead. Birdies yeah, galore at the Shriners Hospital for Children open in Vegas. Actually, it was an eagle fest for Matthew Wolf. 11th hole, Wolf on the fairway from 116 yards out that's in for an eagle but he was just getting started par 5 13th more traditional way of getting the eagle on the green in two from 18 feet that goes down and then on the short par 4 15th 290 yard uh, eight yard tee shot got onto the green and then from 15 feet is third eagle in a five hole span only the fifth time in pga tour history a player's made three eagles on the front or back nine wolf shot 10 under 61 he's tied for third ontario's michael gligic started to put some good results together birdies the 15th here he's tied for 14th the leader, though, is Scotland's Martin Laird, who also made a long eagle today. This one from 50 feet at the ninth. The PGA players just carving up this course this week. Laird is actually tied with Patrick Cantlay as a co-leader at 20 under. But Adam Hadwin just four back. The Whitecaps are back at their home base in Portland tonight to take on Real Salt Lake. Both teams are struggling. RSL is in 10th place. The Whitecaps are three points back in 11th. Vancouver did beat Salt Lake 2-1 earlier this season. That was their last win three weeks ago tonight. Since then, the Caps are 0-4, and they've been outscored 13-1. The Seahawks are back in primetime this weekend. They host the Vikings in the Sunday Nighter. Seattle has certainly become must-see TV this NFL season with Russell Wilson entertaining us on the way to a perfect 4-0 record. Chanel provides even more entertainment in the red zone. For the second time in franchise history, the Seahawks opened the season at 4-0. Now they've scored 30-plus points in every game, but have also allowed a ton. Now Sunday night, the Vikings roll into CenturyLink, looking for their first win in Seattle since 2006. The Vikings got their first win against the winless Texans last week, but overall they haven't looked great. In two of their losses, Minnesota has trailed by double digits at the half. If that happens Sunday, it could be another long night for the Vikings. Dalvin Cook has been a beast, leading the NFL in rushing, and his six touchdowns on the ground is tops in the league. Now, Cook averages almost five yards per carry and poses a big threat to the Seahawks secondary. But in games where Minnesota has fallen behind early, the ground attack becomes non-existent for the Vikings. The good news, Chris Carson ran for a season and team high 80 yards last week versus Miami and scored a couple of touchdowns. He faces a Vikings defense allowing 135 yards a game, ninth worst in the NFL. Now over to the bad news, Carson continues to deal with injuries as he was hurt last week but should be good to go Sunday night. No need to talk about Russell Wilson and the passing game because it's been lethal. What isn't is the defense, dead last in passing and dead last overall. 
But Minnesota struggles with the pass, fifth from the bottom, and of the 49 completed passes to receivers or tight ends, 36 have been to just two players, Adam Thielen and Justin Jefferson. Seattle is favored by a touchdown, have covered in all four games this season, and have won six straight versus the Vikings dating back to 2009. Women's French Open final, 19-year-old Polish teenager Iga Swiatek capped off an historic week, taking on American Sofia Kennan, who won the Australian Open in January. But Swiatek, who did not lose a set all week, was unstoppable again. Great drop shot, won the first set 6-4. Swiatek beat Eugenie Bouchard on her way to the final. Kennan had to get medical treatment for a quad injury and really wasn't at full strength. But Swiatek ranked 54th in the world coming into the week, was Absolutely awesome. Top 10 material for sure. She won the girls' French title at Roland Garros two years ago. Match point, Sviatek with another winner, and she wins it easily. 6-4, 6-1. First Polish player ever to win a Grand Slam singles title, and at 19, the youngest to win the French since Monica Seles in the early 90s. Uh, tomorrow's men's final, Djokovic Nadal, and it should be epic. We look forward to that. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. All right. As the pandemic continues to infect humans worldwide, one company says it has produced a COVID-19 vaccine for animals, and that is good news for the animals and their human friends. Medgene Labs is the first and only federally licensed vaccine facility in South Dakota. The lab usually provides vaccines and services to livestock producers and veterinarians. But since the start of the pandemic, they've been working on something new, a COVID-19 vaccine for pets. So we currently have a vaccine target made for companion animals. The next stage that we're at is to actually look in uh, the animal models themselves, either cats or, or mink, and look for protection. Medgene Labs says they believe they are one of only a few labs in the nation focusing on the animal component of this new virus. Studies have shown that COVID-19 can infect companion animals, and there has been evidence of animal-to-human transmission. Cats, ferrets, and mink have been shown to be susceptible to the disease. To date, there's been very clear transmission from human to cats. We haven't yet seen transmission from cats back to humans with the current strain that's circulating. We have, on the other hand, seen it with mink. Medgene staff adds that viruses can always change and evolve, and preventing pet-to-human infections is their focus. For example, if you have coronavirus and you give it to your pet cat, then they quarantine you, but then they don't quarantine your pet cat. The concern is that your pet can cat can then transmit it back to other individuals. You don't want to have a pet with COVID. <laughs> Simple as that. And that is the news hour for tonight. Thanks for joining us. Jordan's here at 11. Take care.